0: Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Belglade Alliance Church. Belglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Belglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.belgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, we have been trekking through Acts, and most recently we have been following Paul and Barnabas on what will become known as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, If you have that 67th book of the Bible, the book of maps, uh, you might notice that there's a map for Paul's missionary journeys with different colors outlining the travels that he and his companions took on their various missionary journeys. And so today we're going to be able to finish up uh, seeing where he went as he completed his first missionary journey. We're going to see that some of the cities, in fact, most of the cities that he's visited so far, uh, Paul's actually going to be visiting again on his second and even his third missionary journey. And so what has taken place, what we've read about, the ways in which the Holy Spirit has worked through Paul and Barnabas and the churches in these areas, uh, the way in which people came to faith in Jesus, all of this was just the beginning. The ball was just starting to roll, and we're going to see the development of that as we go forward in our study of the book of Acts. One of the things I I didn't mention last week, I didn't mention that we were in Greek cities, and so we're going to see even today uh, some of the Greek beliefs and Greek worldviews and how that played into uh, Paul and Barnabas and their ministry in these areas. But another important thing to note is that these are cities within a region known as Galatia. And I hope that that sounds familiar to you because one of our New Testament books is a letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia, uh, the book of Galatians. And so uh, these are the churches, these are the cities. When you read of the believers, these are the ones who would have been the original recipients of the letter that Paul wrote to Galatians. Not only that, but the same issues that we see uh, Paul writing to in in the epistle of Galatians, are the ones that these churches are enduring uh, in the decades following his ministry here that we're reading about. So these are things to keep in mind uh, as you study the Bible, especially as you reflect on where Paul is and has been and what he's doing as the gospel's going forth. Some of the common themes that we've seen so far as we've been going through this are these, that the gospel is going forward that God is doing amazing things through Paul and Barnabas and their companions, through the churches, the Christians that Paul and Barnabas are ministering with. Uh, They didn't sit back and let Paul and Barnabas do all the ministry, but the the brothers and sisters in Christ gathered together to do the work of the Lord. And long after Paul and Barnabas left, the gospel continued to go forth in these regions through the Christians. And so we see a common theme in all the cities that Paul went to is that people were coming to faith the gospel was going forward it was going forward to the jews but also then to the gentiles and one of the things that we're going to see paul report back one of the victories in christ one of the things that people were blown away by was just how many of the gentiles were coming to faith in jesus and so many came to faith but we also saw the flip side of that you know anytime god is doing something amazing those who stand against god back, And so one of the things that we've seen consistently and we'll continue to see today and going forward is that as the gospel moves forward, as the gospel advances, there's also opposition. And so today, again, we're going to complete Paul's first journey, and we're going to see these same common themes we've been seeing play out in our text today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Acts chapter 14, and we're going to be starting in verse 8 today. We have a little bit of a lengthy passage, and so instead of reading the whole thing up front to you, we're going to deal with it in sections. And so we're starting today in Acts 14, and we're going to start in verse 8. And here's what it says in Acts 14, starting in verse 8. It says, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, this is an amazing miracle, and I don't want you to lose that or take it for granted because we've seen similar miracles like that before, right? We've seen it earlier in Acts. Uh, at the in jerusalem at the temple uh, peter and john performed a similar miracle in christ's name with a lame person we've seen jesus heal people like this and i think sometimes we we take these things for granted reading through the new testament and seeing so many of these miracles that they lose their impact please don't let that happen if we saw somebody in our midst today somebody we've known their entire lives somebody who's never been able to walk somebody who's always been lame And all of a sudden in an instant in a moment miraculously they were not just standing before you but jumping and running having full strength as if they had never been lame never had issue Wow how we would just praise God and be blown away by what had taken place and this is exactly what took place here this is a man who from birth was lame had never walked in fact, when we were talking about this passage in Sunday school, somebody brought up the fact that, you know, as we don't use our muscles, they start to atrophy. They lose not just their strength, but even their their functionality altogether. And this is a man who never used the muscles that you and I use in order to stand and walk and run and jump, and yet in an instant, he not only stood up but jumped this was a miracle. It was also a miracle that was verified. While that doesn't say that here in the text, this is a man who was only present to hear Paul speak because somebody had to take him and lay him down there so that he might beg where the people tended to gather. This is not a somebody who could get themselves to this place by themselves. And so people knew this man. They probably saw him there begging all the time. Many probably knew him for much of his life. And they knew that this was a miracle instantly. I want to talk about this man just a little bit because we tend to focus perhaps just on the miracle that took place. But there's an even greater miracle that took place in this man's life than him being healed. Because here's what it says, the text. It says that he listened to Paul. Before any healing took place, before Paul even took notice of him, before he had faith to be healed, it says he listened to Paul. So that raises the question, listen to Paul what? Well, what did Paul always do? What was Paul's consistent message? Paul was a broken record. Have you ever heard somebody who just said the same thing over and over again? How many of you want to say, yeah, you, Kevin? Um, But this was Paul, right? He was a one-trick pony. He proclaimed the gospel over and over again. He talked about who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, and the salvation that was offered in him. If he was talking to Jewish people, he did it with a Jewish flair. If he was talking to Gentiles, he did it with a Gentile flair. But this was Paul's consistent message. He proclaimed the gospel, and this man was listening to Paul. And as a result, he had faith. He had faith. Faith in what? He had faith in Jesus. Now the text says he had faith to be healed, but before he would have faith to be healed, why did this man, who's been lame his entire life, who's never walked, who there was never any hope for, what on earth would cause him to have faith that at this moment he might receive a physical healing that just seemed impossible? Because his faith was not in his healing. His faith was in Jesus. And so this man had faith in Jesus. He had faith for salvation. And he had faith for healing. So while, man, what a grand miracle that would have been to see this man jump up, who had been lame his entire life, the greatest miracle is that he had put his faith and trust in Christ, received forgiveness and reconciliation with God. All the rest is just added on to the blessing he already received. You know, but passages such as this, with all that took place, all that was at stake, make me play the what-if game. Have you ever done this? You ever say, well, yeah, but what if this had happened instead? Or what if that hadn't happened? You know, my wife and I, before we uh, actually met, we met online, by the way, that might seem weird to you. Um, It wasn't a dating app, I promise. It was uh, We just connected on America Online. Who remembers AOL, raise your hand. Okay, uh, if not you, your kids definitely had it, okay? It was, uh, it, it, was, it was when the internet was first becoming a thing and everybody had it and we were on AOL and I saw on the member directory, uh, there's things about her and her description that I liked. She was a Christian. She was going to the same college I was going to. She liked the same bands I, was, I liked. So I figured, all right, let me start a conversation with her. Well, do you know that just a very short time before Jenny and I met online, uh, a tree had fallen from a storm and it had fallen perfectly between her house and her next door neighbor's house right between her garage and their garage if it had fallen any other direction it could have taken out the house it could have taken out the power it could have taken out the internet it could have taken out anything it could have taken out jenny and her entire family if anything had been slightly different what if that tree had hit her house Jenny and I never would have met, wouldn't have gotten married, wouldn't have had kids, wouldn't be down here in Florida, and wouldn't be ministering here at Douglade Alliance Church. What if? We play the what if game, don't we? What if this had happened? What if that had happened? I do that when I read passages such as this. What if Paul had enough of the persecution, the opposition he faced in every city, that he just decided not to preach the gospel in this town? What if Paul felt awkward around the man with the disability, and so while he was ministering, he just avoided making eye contact with him? What if Paul wasn't scanning the crowd, discerning how the Spirit of God was working in the people who were hearing him at that moment? What if Paul didn't initiate contact with the lame man when he saw the man's faith? Any of these things would have changed the result for this man, not just his healing, but his eternity, perhaps, even. This man who is now a healed Christ follower. And so, why do I do the what-if game? Not just because it's fun sometimes, or scary other times, but because it makes me think long and hard. Because how many moments like this have I missed because I didn't act when a particular opportunity was before me? How many times, how many moments have we missed when a particular moment like this was before us? You know, a couple weeks ago, I met with a Christian in our town uh, who loves to share the gospel with other people. And he shared with me one particular story of when he was sharing the gospel with somebody. He started like he normally does, trying to find an end, trying to find an opportunity to have a gospel-centered conversation with somebody he does not know. And as he did this, um, first of all, let me take a step back. Before he did that, he almost didn't do it. He almost didn't do it because he was having one of those particular kind of days, you know, that don't make you have the warm fuzzies. One of those particular days where you really don't want to be talking to people, not even people you know, never mind strangers. Things just weren't going his way on this particular day. But instead of just keeping to himself and plugging on, he decided he was going to do as he always does, try to start a gospel-centered conversation. And as, as, as God had arranged it, this person had already been being worked on by the Holy Spirit. This person was very receptive, not just to the conversation, but desirous to know more. And as he shared more and more about the gospel, about Jesus, this person put their faith and trust in the Lord. He led them to faith right there, standing at a car wash. I mean, how amazing is that? But you know what, he even asked the question, what if I hadn't started the conversation? Because if out of any day that week, that was the day I was not going to start that conversation. What if I hadn't? And so all these these passages such as this, looking back at Paul and Barnabas and the way in which they ministered, ought to ask us what ministry, what opportunities stand before us and how can we be found faithful, anticipating that God is going to do something amazing. Continuing on in our passage, if you still have your Bible out in front of you. We're starting in verse 11. Here's what it says. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes because he was their chi- the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without a testimony he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Yeah, I remember when I first started off preaching, I honestly had no idea how to deal with a compliment. That I mean, may sound weird to you, um, but do I? if somebody comes up to me after a service and says, "'Good sermon, preacher.' You know, do I say thank you? Or do I do, you know, what other pastors I've had in my life have done, which is, uh, oh, thank the Lord, you know, like deflect. You know, don't, don't take God's glory. So, oh, yep, thank Jesus. You know, what, what do you do? You know, it's funny, it seems so trivial now, because Paul and Barnabas, uh, they probably, as they started off their ministry, never thought, well, how do we handle it if the whole city comes together and wants to, you know, sacrifice bulls and, you know, lay wreaths down in front of us and worship us as gods? That was probably something they did not anticipate. So why did this happen? That seems very strange, doesn't it? In our world, that would be very strange. We see amazing people all the time. We could argue even that people do in some sense worship musicians and you know, you know, athletes and, and other people in our world. Uh, but man, would they ever bring out bulls to sacrifice, lay reeds down before them and offer worship as if people were gods? Um, how did this happen? Why did this happen in this context that we're reading about here today? Well, first of all, let's remember that a miracle had been performed, right? This was a verified, bona fide miracle. They knew this man who had been healed. That doesn't happen every day. Raise your hand if you know somebody who's been lame since birth, never took a step, and all of a sudden, in an instant, jumped up and was fully healed. Raise your hand. That does not happen every day. You can imagine how you might respond if that happened right in your midst. And they were no different. And just like us, we recognize that something of that stature, something that magnificent, something that could only be called a miracle, is not something that a human being can do. It's only something that could be done by God. And so, of course, that was the conclusion that they came to also, that only God can perform a miracle. And so therefore, they interpreted what just took place in their midst through the lens that they were looking through, through their current worldview. And the Greeks did believe that the gods appear as mortals, that Zeus literally does appear like a man and and walk around in Greece. And so perhaps that happened here. The Greeks believed that the gods can perform miracles, superhuman things that human beings can't do. And so they jumped to the conclusion that Paul and Barnabas were, in fact, these Greek gods appearing as mortals in their midst. And what I want to draw attention to is how Paul responded in these moments. He responds in two significant ways. The first one is this, that he tears down their error right away. You know what? I know a lot of Christians who are afraid to hear something asserted that's false and tell somebody that it's false. I, have, uh, I teach apologetics classes, and one of the things that we do is give a defense for the Christian faith, give reasons why Christianity is actually true. Here's the evidence for it, and my students are quick to get on board with that, but the one thing they don't want to do is tell the people across the aisle, y- you know, you, what you currently believe is incorrect, it's wrong. Because that's not politically correct that day today this is that's not what we're taught to do in our culture today and nobody wants to start conflict but here's one thing that Paul did and that we're called to do because nobody's going to consider the truth that you're putting forth if they don't recognize that there's a problem with what they currently believe and so Paul tears this down right away in fact verse 14 says they tore their clothes what does that mean that sounds a little rash um, if I tore my clothes here, you'd probably have me fired and call the police maybe even. But this was in the Jewish culture. This, this was a response. This was a, a, a deep mourning for something that had just taken place, often done when blasphemy had just happened. Uh, it's, it represents a deep sorrow, outrage even. And here, as, as these, these people are looking at Paul and Barnabas and re- believing that they were divine they were so outraged, mourning, and so sorrowful that this was taking place. They literally tore their clothes. And Paul exclaims, we too are only human, like you. And so the first thing he did was tear the error down. Here's the second thing he did. He proclaims the truth. You don't just tear somebody, somebody's belief down. You, rep, you replace it with what is true. And this is what he did. Paul proclaims the truth and he does so in a way that's very relevant to the people he's speaking to. We have to do this too in our culture. We have to give the truth. We have to present the gospel. We have to assert what is actually true but we have to do so in a meaningful way, in a way that's relevant to the person that we're speaking to. And so Paul, we see him refer uh, Proclaiming the gospel and reasoning in a particular way when he's dealing with Jewish people, but he's not dealing with Jewish people here And so he takes a different approach when speaking with the Gentiles when speaking with the Greeks And so with the Jews Paul would often reason from the Old Testament the Hebrew Scriptures Demonstrating that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that they'd been anticipating however with the Gentiles Paul's demonstrating that their current beliefs are false and then he reasons with them to the truth he's bringing them good news he says so that they could turn from these worthless things these things that that don't amount to anything these things that won't and can't help them these things that are are leading them to tragedy he says these are worthless and he's instead giving them the truth of the one true God and so the Greek view of the world and its many gods is false that's what he's saying to them and Paul instead tells them of the God who the text says made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them so while they believed in many gods and these gods were limited gods who uh, were against each other and, and and had so many flaws Instead, Paul is pointing to the one true God, the only God, the one who is sovereign, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all, the one who all things and all people are subject to. And then Paul makes a very important claim that although the Greeks were not God's covenant people, they weren't Israel, they didn't have the Old Testament, right? They didn't have the history with the God of Israel, they didn't have the scriptures, They were not without evidence that the true God was the true God. And this is important because, as I said, he proclaimed the gospel in a relevant way. And we're called to the same in our context. And here's what he says. He says in verse 17, Yet he has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So in other words, God has given revelation of himself. He has revealed himself, unveiled himself, not just to the Jewish people, but to all people for all times in various ways. He's done this through what he has created, through the world that he not only made but sustains, and he points to things such as the sun and the crops and joy And food and provision that God makes not just for His covenant people, but for all people, that they might know that it comes from the hand of God. You know, God reveals Himself in perhaps well, in many ways. But I'm going to give you two categories of ways to think about it. The Jewish people had at least most of this, the Bible. They had the what we call the Old Testament, the entirety of this. They had the prophets that spoke to them they've had encounters in their history with God and so they had what we would call special revelation particular revelation where God has disclosed things to them that he hasn't necessarily disclosed to other people other people groups other kingdoms other places of the world but there's another category of revelation that the Bible talks about ways in which God unveils himself discloses himself reveals himself and he does this to all people And we see this over and over again in the New Testament, and that is through God's general revelation. Because God is the God of the whole world. God is the God who loves all people. God is the God who wants all people to be redeemed. And so God in his mercy has provided a way for all people at least to know something of him. And so we've seen this passage in verse 17 that gives some indication. And I want to read to you just one or two other passages that talk about this. And I'll explain why it's significant. A couple chapters later, Acts 17, 24 through 27, Paul's talking to a different group of people. Greeks, again, he's talking to Athenians in Athens. And here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now that's That's going right against the gods that they believed in. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I want to read that last line again. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us why does God disclose things about himself to all people through what has been made because he desires all people to seek for him and he is faithful to allow them to find him if they seek him and so we see in this particular passage that Paul points to something else before he pointed to the rain and the crops and and food and and joy And now he's pointing to even the division of kingdoms and peoples and their boundaries of their lands and the times in which they've existed upon the earth. Through all of that, God is revealing something of himself that people might seek him and find him. And I'll give you one last passage, just a couple verses from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Here, Paul's talking about the wrath of God, but so perhaps a different spin, but the same message. Here's what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse in other words all people everywhere you can't there you can't be the claim well I didn't know because there's enough that is evident in all of creation that people should look for God and God and his mercy will allow them to be found or will allow them to find him And we see this over and over again. I recounted a story that, one of many similar stories uh, in our Sunday school class this morning. We had a a missionary who shared with us that they had the privilege of being among the first missionaries to a particular region in Africa where there had never been a, a Christian before. There had never been a Bible before. They had never heard the gospel. They would never have heard Jesus. And they come upon this remote tribe. And within this tribe, there are Jesus followers there are Christians very primitive Christians they didn't have the Bible they didn't know a whole lot of things but they knew of Jesus and what he had done and they were worshipers of Jesus in this place how did that happen when they investigated this there was a young woman in that village who was seeking God prayed and had received a vision or dream of Jesus And as a result, she began telling other people in her village about Jesus. And when the missionaries came, they were ripe to be discipled because God had already done the work. Why? Because here in this village, there was at least one. Who was seeing that there is something more, that there has to be God. God has to exist, something about beyond themselves, something that had to have created all of this. God's invisible qualities, his divine nature were clearly seen through what has been made and they desperately desired to know this God. And God made a way even before the missionaries ever arrived. And so again, God does these things. God has revealed himself. In many ways to all people you know today we live among people who believe all sorts of things about God and all sorts of things about the world and we might tell them about God and they might respond by telling us that okay that's great but I don't believe in God we might tell them what the Bible says and they might respond by saying well I don't believe the Bible so what do we do do we give up do we just say well I tried to share the gospel but that's not working out today what do you do when somebody doesn't automatically believe the things that you believe about God and about the Bible. Well, sometimes we need to point to God's general revelation as a bridge to be able to share God's special revelation. In other words, maybe we need to point to the things that they have seen and do understand about God through the creation, through the natural order, so that we can build a bridge to be able to share what God has given us in his special, particular revelation, God's word. We might need to remind them that the reason why something exists instead of nothing at all is because there was a creator behind it. We might need to remind people that the various systems of the world, whether we're talking about organ systems or solar systems, uh, the smallest cell or the farthest star, the laws of logic and the laws of physics all point to an intelligent designer of everything. We might need to remind people that the reason that we can call murder wrong and, call ing- and mourn injustice when we see it together is that there is a universal moral law that's placed on our hearts by, guess what? A universal moral lawgiver. You don't need to be a scientist or a philosopher to make arguments to general revelation. We see evidence of God's general revelation all the time. Whether it's a sunrise in the morning, or the birth of a baby or a starry sky on a clear night we see the evidence it's everywhere around us of god's involvement in his world who god is and what he has done as paul said we can suppress the truth in unrighteousness or we can recognize the fingerprints of the creator in all of it and we need to point it out to others it's easy for us for us who are Christ followers, it's worship. It's, 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 it's like hearing a Christian song that just resonates with you. We can look at the world and be amazed at the glory of God, but we need to also be able to point it out to others so that they might know, so that we can share the gospel. Continuing on in our text in verse 19, it says "Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derb. They preached the gospel of that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, I read this and feel guilty, you know. Paul is the ultimate excuse buster. Uh, I've made some good excuses for things in my life. I've made some really bad excuses too. Um, have you ever wanted to make an excuse for something? Uh, but since someone else accomplished what you were supposed to do with even more obstacles, it just rendered your your excuse completely null and void. Have you ever had one of those moments? You want to beg off of something, you're about to come up with an excuse, and yet somebody does the same thing with higher difficulty, and you're like, okay, there's no more reason to do that. I, I was joking with Jenny the other day. For those of you who don't know, I'm finishing up a dissertation. <laughs> I'm at the more, more toward the beginning of the process, but I'm working on a dissertation toward my PhD, and man, with all the responsibilities I have, with all that I have going on, with all the things that keep coming up, I joked with Jenny and said, you know what, maybe it's better I just quit my PhD just short of the finish line. What do you think? As you can imagine, my wife was not very happy with that. It was a joke, but it wasn't a funny one. Not five minutes later, I check my email. And there is a newsletter from my university, and it's highlighting one of their recent graduates, a woman who was a full-time mother, a full-time worker, was battling cancer, going through chemo, and just completed her PhD at the same university I was at. My joke became even less funny. All the hardships, all the reasons, all the excuses I could come up with, guess what? They were just obliterated in a moment when somebody who had true adversity just accomplished the task, ran the race as if to finish it. Man, that was inspiring. It got me back to work. Um, So have you ever used one of these excuses, perhaps, to not evangelize? I shared my faith once, and the person got mad at me. I can't share my faith with him. It'll ruin the relationship. I can't share my faith with my coworkers. I could lose my job. You know, these sound like really good excuses, these sound like valid concerns. And yet, here comes Paul, the excuse buster. I proclaimed the gospel. They pelted me with rocks until I was almost dead. My friends helped me up. I walked back into town and I kept preaching the gospel. Yeah, in fact, verse 21 says this, they preached the gospel in that city and what a large number of disciples. Yeah, I'm glad Paul wasn't making excuses on that particular day because look what happened. And you know, any excuses that we might come up with uh, for why we don't share the gospel will probably pale in comparison to what Paul has actually come up against and overcome as he continued to preach the gospel. You know, I'm thankful that I live in a country where it's unlikely that I will lose my life for sharing the gospel. I'm thankful that I won't be imprisoned in this country for sharing the gospel. I'm thankful that the worst things that can happen to me are that I could get beaten up, I could get insulted, I could lose some friends, I could carry a social stigma, but that's pretty much the extent of what's going to happen to me if I go out there and boldly proclaim my faith. That's it. Friends, we still have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world for which it is actually illegal for them to share the gospel. They will go to jail and prisons that are far worse than any you would find in this country. And yet they still do it all the time, far more than you or I ever share the gospel in this land of freedom. We may not always have these freedoms in this country. We talk about that perhaps more now than we have in the past. We'd better make good use of the freedoms that we have while we have them. But even if we didn't have them, even if in America it was illegal to share the gospel, you could be imprisoned, perhaps you could lose your life, even if it came to that one day, look at Paul. He almost died for the sake of the gospel, and yet he pushed on. He almost died for the sake of the gospel, and yet he then encourages the church in that city because they too risk their lives for the gospel every day once he moves on. Paul even explains that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now he's not saying that you know that's a prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God. That, okay, it's great you put your faith and trust in Jesus, but if you don't suffer, you're not going to heaven. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying, though, is that life is hard. This life is hard. Proclaiming the gospel is hard. But we have to do it. And when our mission is over, Then, victory, the kingdom of God, peace, joy, paradise. But only then, in this season, as we're obedient to Christ, it's hard. Without the gospel going around the world, without the task being completed, Jesus doesn't return, and the kingdom of God does not come. We have to go through this hard time now. And it takes all of us. And as we conclude our passage here in verses 24 through 28, it says this. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. I love this. Here's why. Paul doesn't finish his missionary journey, gather the church around him, and whine. He doesn't say, you'll never believe what we went through for the gospel. You sent us out. Thank you for your prayers. Can I tell you, I was stoned on the verge of death, dragged outside the city. You wouldn't believe the things that we saw. That's not how Paul did this. That's not what he had to report. That was nothing he didn't care about that what did he care about he cared about what god did through them remember this is the church where paul and barnabas were when they received their missionary call this was the church that prayed over them and sent them out this is the church that continued to pray all the while uh, while paul and, and and barnabas were out in their ministry on their ministry when paul and barnabas came back they were excited To share all the ways in which God worked through them. All the people who came to faith, the Jews and the Gentiles, they they couldn't believe how many of the Gentiles have come to faith in the God of Israel through Jesus Christ because of the ministry that they had just been a part of. Victory in Jesus. Many had come to believe, both Jews and Gentiles, and that was worthy of celebration, not an opportunity for complaint. Friends, we gather together in this place to equip one another so that we can go back into the world on mission for the next six days. That's what we're supposed to do. Believe me when I tell you that I pray for you every single day as we go throughout this week. There's not a single day that I'm not praying for our church and our members, not just our needs, but that we would be effective in this community. In fact, every single one of your names is actually written down on index cards in my office, and I pray for you periodically throughout the week. So you are bathed in prayer. You're equipped in this place to go out and do the work, and I would long, we would long to have you come back on Sunday and report all the ways in which God has worked in and through you as you took the gospel to people here in Belgrade Glade and beyond. If you're not praying for and working toward those kinds of victories in your week, victories for the gospel, then I have to ask, why not?